Welcome to Mitspectives, the podcast about health professionals, the stories of their practice, and their diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and on today's episode, we have Dr. P.G. Shelton, a psychiatrist at Vidant Medical Center in Greenville, North Carolina. Dr. Shelton and I chat about the field of psychiatry as a whole, as well as his passions for child psychiatry. We talk about the stigma around mental health treatment and their underlying causes. Dr. Shelton, interestingly, also worked in the New Zealand's socialized healthcare system for a while, and we talk about key differences between the United States health system and New Zealand's. Enjoy the episode. How are you doing today, Dr. Shelton? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about mental health, right? During the pandemic, I think we focused a lot on the symptoms of COVID, right? The respiratory issues, um, fevers, chills, things like that. Um, and we didn't really focus on the mental health long-term effects of, you know, being in quarantine, um, not seeing people and things like that. So I'm really excited to talk to you about COVID. But before we get into that, um, could you tell us just a little bit about psychiatry as a field and kind of the, the patients you see um, and, you know, how long you interact with them, just to kind of paint a scene of psychiatry as a whole? And I want to talk pre-COVID to start up COVID-19 to start off with. So psychiatry is a very diverse field. It depends on where you're coming from it from a perspective. Are you doing inpatient, outpatient, consultations, working in the emergency department? There's also forensics and child and, and other things like consultation liaison. So I'm actually a child psychiatrist and I see both adults and children, but I also see have specialized before in seeing young adults and worked at a women's college previously briefly. So uh, most of my perspective is coming at this from outpatient child psychiatry and adult psychiatry and also from inpatient child and adult psychiatry. So it can be a very diverse experience with what you do day to day. You can have one psychiatrist do something totally different than another. But one of the unique things in our field, I think, is the relationships, being able to see people every time and um, being able to see people for significant amounts of time. Most of the time we are seeing people for 20 to 30 minutes, uh, or this medicine has moved to these 10 to 20 minute appointments. We're still able to spend about twice as much time with patients and other subspecialties. So we get to know them over time. Um, we get to know intimate things about them, things they would not even tell their friends. Um, so in some ways, you, you know, patients, it's amazing that they can open up to a physician as much as they do. So we get very unique perspectives on what is reality. And reality is very different from what you see on Facebook, social media and stuff. Um, there's a lot of stress, a lot of disharmony in the world, um, a lot of depression and stuff. So it gives you a very unique and more accurate, I think, insight into human nature um, and the human perspective. So um, that's one of the things I, I really enjoy about this field. And you, you talked about a little how others feels like it's pretty short patient interaction, right? And you said like you're you're doing like usually like 30 minutes. Um, what are those encounters like? Like how are you interacting with them? Um, and I think another thing is how do you gain that trust for them? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, building a relationship to a, with a person is just showing them that you care, that you want to, to address their problems and that you just want to be an active listener. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, when we first start to build rapport with the patient, we start in areas of relative strength um, or neutral topics. And we try to see people for, you know, who they can be and their potential, not necessarily for the problems they're going through right now. We try not to identify people in psychiatry as a diagnosis. 
or is, or is a certain problem, even though they may have issues that you want to work on, but we also kind of, I think, see the best in people. And what, you know, we're focused on a lot of times in psychiatry, even though we can decrease mortality by improving patients' life, that a lot of the focus is on morbidity and just health in general. And I think, you know, the patients appreciate that. And it, it's, it's refreshing to be in a specialty that doesn't focus just on prolonging life, but making it significantly better. It's really interesting. I think um, an interesting field with like with psychiatry is like there's a balance, right, with like the medication aspect of it, and then like the just pure like interaction with the patient. How how do you balance that, and what is the balance with between those two things? It's an interesting balance that you ask. Um, as time has gone on, it seems like we're a little bit more psychopharma and biologically oriented, but there's still a lot of like psychology within um, psychiatry itself. So um, most psychiatrists are taught to do some basic therapy and training. Not all of them will, will do things like cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff when they leave training, and, um, but some still do a mixture of what we call combined therapy with medications and with psychotherapy. I try to carry you know, at any time at least one or two patients that I'm doing some therapy with just so I can keep those skills up. At times, I wish I could do more though. But I think it gives you a very unique um, perspective on people um, because you don't view them as illnesses and biological entities. You view them as really psychological, social beings. Um, you get a lot better, you know, well-rounded picture of who a person is. I mean, we're unique in the creature in the fact that we have language and that we have, you know, very unique or um, intensive socialization skills. And you can have direct um, contact on the brain and actually change neuroplasticity and neuronal connections through talking with other people so, and changing the way people think. So I, I enjoy that part of psychiatry is that I get to, to work with particularly young people who have a lot of neuroplasticity, a lot of room for change. And I get to help them in their, you know, kind of um, in their development and how they perceive the world and their environment. So. It sounds like very fulfilling, right? Like seeing that, um, seeing patients being able to become you know, better, better in that sense. Have you seen like, do you have any um, moments that stick out in your career that like, or maybe patients that have really been indicative of that? Yeah, and, and, I, and, and just like everywhere in medicine, there are patients that are more difficult to reach and help and that are chronically ill and that we struggle with. But um, there are a lot of cases in particular I can remember where there's been significant improvement. Um, I can't say too much about details of, of patients here with HIPAA issues, but I mean, I can give you an instance where I had a patient on um, our psychiatry inpatient unit for probably about two months who um, had attempted three pretty serious suicide attempts in one day, one a shotgun wound to the face, carbon monoxide poisoning, and then another um, attempt when that did not work. And that, that said person is, is very functional and doing well right now and um, has made a complete recovery, which is really amazing. Um, I've been able to work with students that were borderline filling out of school and struggling, um, having the potential kind of to really change the trajectory of their lives. And we're able to kind of get them back on course and have them graduate and be successful. So I get to see a lot of, lot of change in people, um, a lot of improvements. And I mean, I guess those are my most memorable cases. Um, I've got, you know, an example, one, um, and one time a father get out of his vehicle, pull it over in a busy road to actually thank me for helping out his family who I treated three of the boys who all had autism, for instance. So that, that was kind of a, 
impressionable moment on me that I remember because wow, this person pulled their car over, got out to like give me a hug and thank me. <laughs> so um, there are some very rewarding moments when you see things like that happen, but also just people, simple things like the, the kids that I see actually making it through and getting a high school diploma year to year. And I know maybe they would not have gotten to that point without my assistance. Now I think they and their parents did most of the work, but just to think I have a small role to play in, in that that future potential and where that person's going makes me, you know, is rewarding and makes me feel like my job is worthwhile. And sometimes it really is like, like you said, it, it is most, it's mostly them doing the work, but you know, you're, you play that like super integral job of like flicking that switch where like, that's what enables them to continue to do the things that they need to do. You know, teaching them um, how to cope with things and how to manage things and how to see things differently. And, you know, treating their, the things that are the barriers or things that are getting in the way of their potential. And I think, you know, particularly youth, you know, are so resilient, but, you know, you, you can remove those barriers from them or, or at least make those barriers more surmountable. You know, they'll climb over them and, and, and do well. So it's one of the reasons I like working particularly with youth, college age and, and younger. Right. Yeah, that must be really fulfilling. I think it's been good because in the, in the last couple years, right, there's been a bigger... Um, awareness of mental health and more acceptance of it. But I think it's also interesting like to see how neglected it was in the past, right? And so how have you seen that in your career? Yeah, I mean, it definitely uh, I've seen improvement, I think, with awareness of mental illness and acceptability. Um, I think with a lot, of, like a lot of topics in society, there has, has been discussed more. It's a bit more acceptable, but there is still a long ways to go. There's still a lot of stigma against mental illness. I mean, I've had, um, for instance, some other physicians' kids I've seen and stuff, and physicians themselves who wouldn't want to get involved in psychiatric care or take psychotropic medications because of the stigma. Um, we have a lot of stigma against some um, very successful treatments out there, like um, ECT or electroconvulsive therapy with adults, which is an extremely um, successful treatment, um, can cure 70 to 90% of depressions and aren't responsive to meds, but yet we can't get people to typically elect to to take that medicine because, or to take that treatment because of what they've seen on TV and online. So there is a lot of misinformation out there. Um, if you go online and look and stuff, and there's still a lot of stigma um, among you know psychiatric treatments and psychiatric care in particular. So I think we still have a lot of barriers to overcome and still need to be probably more active than we actually are in doing that. So um, I think if you know, there's this is a, a very, um, profitable field for society from a standpoint of the, um, you know, GDP and, and productivity loss from psychiatric illness um, to society is extremely high. Um, depressions up there with things like cancer may actually overtake them with how much money they cost society from lost productivity. So I uh, know I think, you know, looking at how much the cost of society mental illness um, is responsible for and how much we actually spend on it are you know, pretty different. You know, we probably do not put the resources that we should into to treating mental illness and at least doing advocacy and awareness around it. Comparable to other illnesses, it causes a lot of loss of productivity like heart disease, cancer, these type of things. Right, and it's interesting how you bring up, bring up the ultimate cause of like loss of finances, right? Like, cause I think a lot of people coming into psychiatric care, psychiatric care, they're thinking more of like the cost of it initially and then you know, the, the aspect that you talk about with the, the loss of productivity and, and the ultimate gain of productivity that you'll get from the psychiatry um, 
treatment is is what you know balances out or makes it better. Yeah, and, and patients um, respond better to their other treatments for their medical conditions, um, and they live longer. You know, when their psychiatric is stable and doing well. So a lot of our patients, you know, lose one or two decades of life, unfortunately. Um, so we can actually improve and decrease their you know medical costs and stuff by. Um, treating their psychiatric illness effectively. So we know things like depression are linked with um, worse cancer, cardiovascular outcomes and those type of illnesses. So, you know, there, there's a large cost to society from a healthcare and societal standpoint with these illnesses, but yet, you know, they're not up there. Um, they're not predominantly in people's faces as much as, as other causes of death, mortality, and morbidity. Um, if you look at the number one cause, for instance, of death, and people under 40, it's actually opioid overdose right now, which is a somewhat physician and pharma, um, pharmaceutical creative issue that's unique to the United States. But um, people you know, don't often recognize it's not motor vehicle accident, it's not other things, it's actually opioid overdose and addiction is a bigger problem for you know, death still than even COVID in people under 40. I mean, we're losing about 72,000 people, I think, a year to opioid overdose under 40. And that's, it's really concerning because with, with, like we said earlier with the stigma, like how are people, you know, people don't recognize that sometimes that they have these issues, right? And so the step of them recognizing that, okay, I need to go see a psychiatrist and then actually doing it, like how does that transition happen? And then like when you think of children in particular, right, like children wouldn't like by their own necessarily think like, okay, I need to go get help. And so there also there always has to be that additional push, I guess, to to get to that situation. So how how do you how do you see that in your practice? <laughs> it's a difficult question. Um, you know, youth don't have the the preformed stigmas as much, particularly young youth. Um, it's not probably until I see a little bit more resistance to psychiatric care until closer to the teenage years and into adulthood. So I think these are things we pick up from society, from you know movies we watch dealings with family members and stuff. So I think the thing is just to be more open about, you know, mental illness. I mean, um, the fact that we keep things so hush-hush, I think is a, a big issue. Um, you're real quick to tell people, hey, I've got hypertension, I've got, you know, congestive heart failure or high cholesterol, but a lot of people will hide the fact that they have a mental illness. I have families um, where I will ask the kid or the family member what runs in your family, and I'm like, I think things run in the family. I see people, but nobody talks about it. So is this um, fear of talking about things. And I think the fear of judgment and stuff. So I think we have to normalize psychiatric illness. Um, the fact that it's, it's commonplace can help fight some of the stigma on it. Yeah. And do you know like how, like what things are we lacking right now to like in order to make that become more like streamlined? Do you have any like insight on that? That's a very complicated um, situation there, a question. Um, I think a lot of it is um, probably you have to address it from um, a societal standpoint. I mean, do we need to put more, you know, campaigns out there to um, make mental illness less stigmatized? I mean, there are actively groups out there like the Scientologist group who create these organizations that actually put out a lot of videos on YouTube and stuff that are anti-psychiatry and mental illness and against treatment. So are we making the same effort to actually, you know, from a financial um, standpoint um, to actually fight, you know, those with you know, advertising and other things. Um, 
I remember one of the things that was striking to me when I um, lived in New Zealand and I don't know, and they have a lot of the same issues that we have here with stigmatization of, of mental illness was that it was active um, commercials on TV, not necessarily about, you know, treatments with medications, but about um, trying to normalize um, mental illness and, and take the stigma off of it and stuff. Now, how successful those programs are, it'd be interesting to do research on them, but I think, you know, you have to have some type of societal approach in addition to a re regional approach um, out there. And I think we do on a day-to-day -day basis try to uh, combat stigma with our patients directly. Uh, a lot of times, I'll, you know, if they'll refuse a medication, I'll, you know, I'll bring up examples of if you have this and it was causing this much impairment in your life, like hypertension, and you were, you know, your kidneys were beginning to fail, would you still refuse to treat the hypertension and kidney failure, you know? Um, so we'll have patients who you know, refuse any treatment across the board. So we'll try to compare and try to get them to look at something called we use called motivational interviewing to get them motivated to want to make change, but also to make them more interested in maybe researching, you know, stigma and being more receptive to talking about stigma around psychiatric illness. I mean, um, I personally even have, you know, a, you know, children with things like ADHD and anxiety. And I, I remember even myself feeling guilty starting one of my kids on ADHD medicine, um, despite knowing that, you know, I can handle things behaviorally. But when I saw the educational concerns coming up and the fact, you know, they weren't tapping in their potential and learning as a young kid, um, despite, you know, really intensive efforts, um, you know, we had to make that decision. And the outcome was very good, actually, but um, the guilt associated with me and my spouse, but particularly my spouse, more so than me, there was still some internal guilt about, you know, were we something different about us as a person or parents to have to, you know, need treatment for this. And, and I think it's something that's kind of raised in you from um, early on. I mean, a lot of times you grew up in, 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 particularly in the South, where, you know, you can't be seen crying, you don't discuss your feelings about things, those type of things. These are societal issues, and I think it starts at an early age, being open about emotion with your kids and that it's okay to experience different emotions. I don't, you know, our emotions don't necessarily define 100% who we are and what we do. A lot of times it's our reactions to those, but it's normal to have different ranges of emotions um, for people and to have different emotions totally from person to person with an experience. But I think we have to normalize it. It's okay to be an emotional person. You can still be functional and normal and be emotional about things. So It's really interesting like you talking about the background of people. I think with with yourself in particular, how did you get into psychiatry? Like what was your your motivation to go into this kind of field? Psychiatry is, is, is several fold. You know, for one, I enjoyed, you know, the relationships with the patients, the time I got to spend with them. I also just found, you know, neuroscience. I've always been attracted to the brain, neuroscience. Um, attractive. Um, I, I feel like, you know, psychiatry is kind of one of those last spheres with um, knowledge base and the fact that not a lot of evidence base was out there for psychiatry probably before, you know, the 60s and 70s. We didn't have a lot of treatments for things outside of like ECT, insulin shock. So a lot of the science is still very new, but it's it, it's growing in leaps and bounds. There's still the brain is kind of the organ that's the last frontier. We still don't really understand a lot of aspects about it. Um, so those things, that area, um, all that room for research, exploration, um, getting to know people on a personal level. And finally, I just enjoyed seeing the outcomes, the decrease in morbidity, the increase in quality of life, not just for the person we're treating, but also oftentimes for the families. I and mean, you can really change families 
and make a huge um, difference in their lives, I think, in this field. So those are things that kind of attracted me to the field, the room for research and growth, um, the, the excitement in that, and also just the fact that I can build relationships with people. Right. And those relationships um, are probably like, like you were talking about, you, you, you change families, right? Have you seen like cases where, you know, you treat one person in the family and they see like, maybe they see it, like significant improvement. And then, you know, someone else in the family is like, you know, I think I should go too. Is, is there like anything like that you're seeing? Yeah, I've, I've seen many families where, you know, we started treating the children or, or the parent got treatment and encouraged them. It took a little bit of the stigma off care and they themselves actually started to get treatment. A lot of times, you know, families share an, an illness and pathology and the fact that, you know, we are not isolated from one another. When one person's ill or sick or is struggling, it tends to, you know, other family members can pick them up a bit, but it can cause stress in the family as a whole. So one of the main things I see a lot of times is when I see, you know, youth in particular, a lot of times it may be the parent that actually has more psychopathology or more psychiatric illness and they may not have insight into that. I'm not saying that happens the majority of the time, but, you know, raising a kid is difficult. And a lot of times by the um, time, you know, children come see me, the parents are extremely stressed. They themselves may be a bit depressed, anxious or, and such. So getting them help, making sure they are, are really as fit as they can be so they can take care of their kid. is one of the jobs that I have, you know, I'm taking care of families, even though my soul, um, my main responsibility is the youth. You know, I still have to try to work on getting insight with the parent and maybe getting them assistance or help if they need it. So. Right. And with, with treating so many patients, do you ever feel like, you know, maybe their um, mental health is taxing on your own? Like, is there any, um, how, how has it been like, you know, working for this long, coping with certain cases that might be harder than others? How, how has that been on a personal level? Yeah, a lot of people ask me how you do that. But if you ask my psychiatrist, I, you know, I, I think if you do something you really love and that you like doing, it's not seen as much work and it's not as taxing for one thing. You know, there may be a, a genetic component too as a physician where, you know, some people are able to take talking about these things and the, and the emotional stresses and stuff better. But I think overall, you know, there's stress everywhere in medicine. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, but I think if you're doing something you like, that pressure is, is really lessened significantly. So. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's really impressive because like, I feel like with a lot of people, right? Like, it's, it can be so taxing, like having to talk to patient after patient that has, you know, maybe some things that are not going that well. Um, and then having to listen to all that and then try to improve them. And then, you know, you sometimes you, you yourself might feel a little bit off. You have, you have to be able to accept you cannot change everything yourself and you have very limited powers. Um, so, I mean, even though as a physician, you're going to fail, you're going to lose patients, you're going to have patients as a psychiatrist who maybe don't end up, you know, on the trajectory that you would like them to. Um, and you, you can't place blame on yourself for that. I think you do need to necessarily, you, you do need to look at yourself and maybe what you can do differently case to case. For sure, you need to grow as a, as a physician and person um, when things don't go well. But at the same time, I think you really have to focus on the future or the potential with patients and, and also, you know, think about the good that you're doing and the successes that you have. It's real easy to get focused on one or the other, but I think you got to kind of look at both too. So. And how has it been like these last couple of months? Like how has that been on your mental health? How has it been on the system of 
and in the field of psychiatry. So you're talking about with the COVID effect? With, with, yes, with the COVID. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think when COVID first struck, how it hit me that this is real was, you know, just how the, our appointments changed overnight. We had a huge reduction of patients being seen, which is concerning because, you know, we worry about coming out on the back end of this pandemic about the people who are avoiding psychiatric care, not just psychiatric, but avoiding medical care. I imagine, you know, a lot of cancer cardiovascular diagnosis and mental health diagnosis are really going to make a jump afterwards because people were avoiding care and those um, unfortunately those cases are probably going to be more advanced and higher in severity so we, we have seen a little bit of a rebound over the summer with you know our, our units were maybe at half capacity what they were before but they seem to have really picked back up and be fairly full recently but my concern is they may be beyond that at some point in the future uh, I'm seeing a lot of stress with my patients being isolated um, can't associate with family, trying to keep bubbles, having particular youth and kids who can't get back to school or that, you know, I have patients at ECU or that I have I went back to school for two weeks and now they're being pulled back out. So that's stressful having to transition your freshman year, for instance, from high school to college. Your um, senior year was already quite different in high school and now you're dealing with this in your face again um, in the beginning of your freshman year. So I've had to deal with youth going through that, but in particular, youth have had less time, you know, structured, um, less school contact, less social contact. So I see patients kind of being more anxious, more depressed, more isolated. Um, in particular, I think kids are struggling with what do you, what do we do? You know, this is very different to them. So, um, you know, I think working, we've had to do more telemedicine, more phone calls. Um, there's a difficulty in psychiatry and, you know, when people come in, and you, you and you're having to look at them through a mask. You can't read facial expressions as well. It's more difficult verbally to communicate with people to an extent. Um, so in some way, telemedicine is, is has some superiority. Uh, I still don't enjoy it as much as the in-person contacts. But there's a little bit more, I think, fear with patients and even among physicians. You know, psychiatrists having somebody in a closed room for up to two hours, one to two hours for an evaluation, or 30 minutes for an appointment. You know. Have patients who pull down their masks frequently or have them down below their noses and mouth and they're talking. So you have to instruct them to maybe put them back, but it's hard to do that with kids. So I have kids in here that are, that are aerosolizing, you know, um, or putting droplets into the air and stuff. So it's something you worry about, but you know, the risk is low as long as we keep our mask on. But I think there's a lot, a lot of fear out there in medicine and psychiatry um, to an extent, but more so probably among patients coming in. I've got patients who just will not come in from fear of avoiding the doctor's office, but we've been able to reach some of those through telephone and, and telemedicine. I've been surprised with the barriers to telemedicine in Eastern North Carolina. There's a lot of patients without access to internet and a lot of patients without the know-how and ability to afford technology to do telemedicine to even into the home. I think there's some barriers to people who don't feel like they want you in their home with a, from a video standpoint as it invades their privacy. So what I thought would be where I'd have, you know, most of my patients on telemedicine, I probably only have maybe about 25, 20, 25%. The rest of them are coming in or defaulting to phone calls, but a large number are now coming in in person. So yeah, it's really interesting to see, right? Like the, especially with being in, in at Biden, um, where you have to take care of such a large area of, um, land and such a large variation in parent patients. Um, I mean, like you said, like telemedicine is accessible to some, and even to the ones who's, who it is accessible to, there's like that sense of um, uncertainty about it. And I don't know, there's just so many things to think about there. Um, 
And I think you you talked about earlier about how you worked in New Zealand for some time in healthcare there. How how was it there, and how how what differences do you see between the two systems? Yeah, I mean it's a socialized medical system in New Zealand, um, so it's more comparable to maybe Canada or, or some of the smaller countries in Europe. Um, working in it, it really wasn't that different. The, the surprising difference was the, the time spent on um, insurance issues, um, pre-authorizations for medications and that type of stuff um, was a lot less. I mean, very little in the way of insurance exists there. Some people have private insurance. I worked in the public health care system. So, I mean, I kind of helped lead a child mental health team in a small community of about 80,000 at the time. So, I mean, access to care is easier. I mean, like it's paid for by everybody, accident care and regular medical care. Um, So I feel like there were probably less barriers. Um, Patients could get transportation easier and there were probably more um, offices and stuff for people to be seen and stuff. Um, It's not, well, it's not a perfect system. I feel like it was probably somewhat superior system. And and I haven't always been pro-socialized medicine by any means. I was very probably anti-socialized medicine until I, um, lived in Australia briefly and saw it and then later went and worked in New Zealand. So um, I, I think it does help remove some barriers. In some ways, it's probably more cost effective and makes sense. They're able to keep costs down. The percent of their, um, for instance, gross domestic product that they spend on health care is dramatically lower than the United States, but yet their health outcomes are probably overall better. Do I think they have better cutting edge um, care? No, it's not any better than the U.S., but I think they have better primary and secondary care. Um, They remove barriers. Patients can afford medications. They can get treatments easier, and therefore they're not as sick. So, I mean, it keeps costs down. So, I think overall it's probably more effective. I think they've been more effective with COVID. I mean, it's an advantage to be an island country surrounded by water. You know, New Zealand is a large country size-wise, actually. It's bigger than, I think, than the UK or Japan. But um, population-wise, it's only about five to six million people. So put that in comparison, it's about the population of South Carolina. So it's easier when you have a small government to kind of lead a coordinated response. I think the U.S. size makes it more difficult to, to manage. Um, I think also, you know, being a small country, you can have an easier top-down approach to things. So they've been very pro-science and they've kind of mimicked a lot of the Southeast East Asian countries of how they would handle this. So for instance, I think they've used Korea as a model. So. And I think that's a big factor of it, right? Like the U.S. has like 50 different states, all these, um, you know, this giant population and then versus like New Zealand, which doesn't have that. And it's easier to become centralized and like have one viewpoint yeah and i think the other thing is it's just um it's, it's a different societal values like um other so there's a good number of other countries who value um the needs of society as a whole are more important than the individual or you know the united states is, is the needs of the individual trump sometimes the needs of the whole it's a different viewpoint it has strengths and weaknesses one of the weaknesses is trying to manage something like a pandemic with our value system so it's different i don't think either one's right or wrong but you know i think this has played into their strengths a lot more than it did ours and to their small size so. right and do you think those values have any direct like implications on on uh, mental health and how they take care of that? That's a very interesting question. I hadn't thought about that quite honestly. I'm sure it does um, and how you address mental health and stuff. So, I mean, it's probably, I don't know if it's viewed as much as an individual problem as much as it is a, a, um, 
societal issue, but I mean, like early on teamwork and stuff is probably a little bit more valued. Like I don't remember in New Zealand, small groups were um, probably the main way of teaching up through like the fifth grade and stuff. Um, so there are, there are a lot of differences, but at the same time, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, I think in some ways when I worked in healthcare there, you know, um, while it was more cost effective in some ways, in other ways, I think, you know, there wasn't as much of a push for productivity as there is here. Uh, and in some ways, you know, I probably get a lot more training experience in patients here because the volumes are higher and stuff. I think New Zealand's been good about pushing back, not overloading the physicians as much, trying to give more quality care. But at the same time, they're not able to reach enough people. So there are probably, you know, people not getting the care that they need. So um, I think the, the volumes are a lot higher here. I mean, I've had physicians I've worked with that worked at both places and they say they can see two or three times more patients in a day that here than there. So not that can be a lot of pretty stressful, right? Seeing that many people. Um, it is, but I mean, there's there's never enough physicians. You have to kind of see as many as you can while trying to trying to keep a minimal level of quality and to keep that up. So it's a battle. It doesn't matter where you work. And I think th- during this last like the last couple of months, right, we've seen a lot about shortages, like PPE um, in nurses and like you said, physicians. What what other shortcomings of of the healthcare system are you seeing in your position, and how do you think we're gonna we're gonna be able to grow from that hopefully by the end of this? It's a good question. And I, I mean, being that uh, I guess United States healthcare is kind of very fragmented, it's just the way it is. I mean, like the states and regional systems are very uh, isolated or in kind of the compartmentalized from one to another. Um, can kind of be positive in the way it serves as a hub for innovation. You have all these different systems, there's so many different systems working and they find different ways to handle the same problems. So it creates, I think, innovation. At the same time, um, I think, you know, having a, we probably could have had a better top-down approach from, you know, having a more unifying approach, particularly from probably from the federal government, but that's my opinion, I think, um, is sending the same message to everybody. Um, trying to do things like, you know, encourage masquerading and things. There's a lot of um, misinformation out there and a lot of, even among, uh, I guess, politics division, among how to best to handle this as opposed to just going with the science, no matter what side you're on, you know, science is the, should be the unifying thing. So I think that's made it difficult for us to approach things from a unified manner. And I think it's interesting you talked about telemedicine in the beginning, right? Like that could potentially see some major strides after this the homecoming for telemedicine or um you know i think in some ways the the horse is out of the barn and the fact that i think telemedicine is going to be a bigger player going forward and i think telemedicine you know in the past has been more you know one office to another um there's going to hopefully be more opportunity to telemedicine and homes to remove barriers of care so we still need patients to come in to do physical exams and to see in person i don't think we can replace that uh, i don't think we're trying to replace that but i think you know between appointments having check-ins and those type of things you know we can maybe use telemedicine to drink, increase accessibility to care um, i have patients i may need to follow up on for a side effect for medicine in two or three weeks Right now, I can't follow up with them or I use a telephone call, which is not billable. 
could I use a telemedicine, you know, appointment to follow up with a simple follow-up time to time? Or with patients that are pretty stable that I follow every three months, could I see them every six months and do a telemedicine appointment between that? So that may be options going forward. I wanted to break down barriers. We have patients in Eastern County who drive two or three hours to get to Vida and ECU. I had patients from you know, Oak Cove, from the Outer Banks, um, you know, from the far reaches, you know, of Hyde County, which, you know, it's, it, it's an entire day for them to drive up here. They miss the entire day of school almost. They get fired from their jobs if they miss too much time. So I think if we need, can decrease stress on them, but not decrease the quality of care and still be able to get, you know, our exams and be able to see people in person some, I think, you know, telemedicine is going to play a role going forward. And I think going into the home, um, to do telemedicine increases accessibility. We can't establish a telemedicine office in every county in North Carolina by any means. So. Well, that'd be really exciting, right? Seeing that increase in accessibility everywhere. I know they were talking about like, um, like you said, there was a, a talk about doing office to office, like something about um, having like x-ray facilities close to people's houses and then have the radiologists like, you know, that actually interpret them in a different location and just have things literally just sent to them. So you don't have to have like facilities in each place. And I think that's a really effective way um, to approach the lack of um, sufficient care in some, some areas, right? Like having systems in place like telemedicine to do that. Um, well, Dr. Shelton, uh, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add about anything? Not really. Uh, again, I appreciate you asking me, you know, kind of on the viewpoint in particular with how, you know, mental health has been affected by the pandemic and what are some pressing issues in mental health. Yeah, awesome. And thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you for sticking on until the end. If you love Mitspectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow and we would really appreciate it. Also, please send us a voice message and we'll feature it on our next episode. Basically, all you have to do is go to the link in the episode description and you can easily make one at that link. Thank you and see you next Monday.